Hi, my name is Gina Reutman, and I'm the author of three books. Tell Me a Story, Tell Me the Truth is a collection of nine-linked stories that follows the life of a Montreal woman from early childhood to midlife. And although it's not about the Holocaust, the shadow of the Holocaust is always in the background. My second book, Midway to China and Beyond, was a biography. The life story told to me by Gary Bromberg about his incredible adventures and connections traveling the world for business. But today I'll be sharing with you my third book, the literary thriller Don't Ask, published in spring 2022 by Guernica Editions. The title is borrowed from the punchline of an old joke. It goes like this. For years and years, two old Jewish men have waited at the same bus stop and boarded the same bus for work every weekday, yet never exchanged a word. One day, frustrated, Sam decides to break the silence. He introduces himself and then berates his fellow traveler for never once turning him to him to say so much as, Hello, or how are you? Taken aback, the other man responds, You're right. You're absolutely right. My name is Benny. It's nice to meet you, Sam. So, how are you? To which Sam replies, Ach, don't ask. For me, this reflects how we often want to be acknowledged, yet may dread revealing the truth about ourselves. In Don't Ask, and in, as in life, characters only divulge as much as they have to, and sometimes not at all. A little about my background. I was born in Germany to parents who both lost spouses and children during the war. They met in a displaced persons camp where I was conceived, but because my mother had heard rumors about babies dying in the DP camp, I was actually born in a nearby town, where, as it happens, Hitler had spent his early years. This is a story my mother told me often, and eventually it led to me making a documentary. In 1949, we immigrated to Canada and to Montreal, in which I have lived all my life. And it's a city I love. It has shaped me, and I hope I've repaid the debt I owe to it in this novel. I began writing Don't Ask in 2005 and planned a visit to Germany to do the research. The theme I had in mind was an exploration of how war and destruction and displacement impact life for the generations that come after the children of survivors and perpetrators alike. When a film crew accompanied me to Germany to track my experiences, I put the novel aside. And eight years later, my executive producer, Jane Houghton, and I finally, finally completed the award-winning documentary film, My Mother, the Nazi Midwife and Me. It's a story about how my mother saved my life. But the bare bones of my novel remained sitting in a drawer. In my collection of short stories, many pivoted on the relationship between a mother and her daughter. And my mother was a remarkable woman who never stopped telling me stories, stories that I didn't want to hear. And then when I was 28, sadly, my mother died and the story stopped. Yet in my mid-40s, when I started to write, it was her stories that inspired me. From the outset, I wanted Don't Ask to explore an experience that I had never had. Don't Ask is not a memoir. It's a work of fiction. But like all writers, I've been influenced by what I've experienced. The arc of the novel reveals a path littered with guilty secrets and treachery, often in a desperate struggle to survive. 
So in shaping the character of Rojo, I considered what it would be like to have a mother unlike mine, one who never revealed her background, who never told her stories, one who wore silence like armor. And so Hannah, her daughter, evolved in response to that, and early on, she learns not to ask any questions. At the outset of the story, Hannah, a former social worker, is in her mid-40s, a highly successful Montreal real estate broker. She's divorced, childless, and the only child of two survivors. Her biggest client is Chaim Sonnenschein, an international real estate developer who himself is a survivor. So much baggage. How does an only child navigate her parents' horrific histories without adequate protection? As the novel opens, Hannah's father, Barak, has been dead for several years, leaving her to care for her reclusive, laconic mother, Ruchel. While Barak lived, Ruchel had been a silent partner to her bombastic husband. But to Hannah, she was always an enigmatic and undemonstrative mother. Her main form of communication with her only child was through cryptic notes, written in coded language which Rochel would secretly tuck into unlikely locations for Hannah to find. A jean pocket, a sandwich wrapper, the zipper compartment of a purse. It was easy for me to imagine a mother who kept her past a deeply guarded secret because every family has secrets and an infinite number of ways to hide them. But it proved much more complicated to render a daughter who may have wanted to know more about her mother's past but was terrified of what any question might reveal. All she knew about her family history had come from her father, who, and he did not encourage questions. For Hannah, asking about the past might open festering wounds or worse, suddenly shift the weight of a tragic story onto her own shoulders. It is ultimately easier for Hannah to live with what is than to explore what lies at the root of her mother's terrifying silence. Early on, I wrote and rewrote the first chapter in an effort to set the scene for the story I wanted to tell. I kept editing, changing how Hannah arrived at her mother's home to take her to a doctor's appointment. Everything was endlessly rewritten because this novel unfolded as I explored the characters. But the last line of the first chapter never changed. I believed that the plot had to pivot on the final cryptic note Rochel had left for Hannah. It read, I am not her. It was that line that propelled me through the book and led me on a journey that the characters insisted I take. I would like to introduce you to the three main protagonists of the novel through a brief excerpt from each. Don't Ask begins with the discovery that Ruchel is missing. And this is seen from Hannah's point of view. Hannah waited 24 hours before calling the police, knowing Ruchel would have been mortified. Oh, my God, the police. To, to bring herself to the notice of the authorities was something to be avoided at all costs. It was one of Ruchel's many unspoken rules. If she was in the car with Hannah and a siren wailed, no matter how far away, no matter what kind of siren it was, ambulance, fire truck, or police, Hannah had to immediately pull over to the side of the road and stop the car and no one was allowed to move until the sound had died away. You never know. That was all the explanation Hannah ever got, and for Ruchel, that was saying a lot. 
I am not her. On the day Ruchel disappeared, in the gloom of the beige hallway, on the edge of the wrought iron seat next to a phone that rarely rang, Hannah sat folding and unfolding the note as if by some magic its meaning would be revealed. What did Ruchel mean by her? Was it a mistake? Didn't Ruchel mean, I am not here? Not that that made any more sense. And if she could decipher it, what could it tell her except what was obvious? Ruchel had left home without her purse, no wallet so no means of identification, and with no known destination in mind. Deep in Hannah's belly, a larva of worry was growing. Hannah slid into the sweltering car. Almost instantly, sweat filmed her face and trickled down the curve of her clenched jaw. She stared out of the windshield at the front door of the duplex, as if half expecting that by some miracle her mother would suddenly appear. For almost all of her 45 years, Hannah could predict Ruchel's every move, although never her motives, never the why. Now this. Nothing had prepared her for this. Not even the shocking exchange that she and Ruchel had had the night before. Like an anxious child, Hannah brought her thumb to her mouth and started chewing on the cuticle. You're eating yourself up alive, Marilyn would say. A classic case of self-cannibalization. Marilyn had a theory for and an opinion on everything. For a moment, phone in hand, Hannah thought about calling her best friend, but hesitated. To call would be to admit that something serious had happened. There was no proof of that. Not yet. A thin line of blood trickled from Hannah's thumb. Cause and effect. The sharp pain came as welcome relief. She began to coast up one block and down another, trolling through the streets of the area she knew like the contours of her mother's face. She drove half-believing that she might spot Ruchel, or by some fluke maybe someone familiar. But after so many years in Montreal, her mother's smattering of acquaintances, those who hadn't died, were living far away in Israel or Miami. Slowly rolling past run-down apartment buildings, Hannah worked on recalling anyone she might contact about Ruchel. No one came to mind. Since her father's death, Hannah had avoided thinking about how bereft of human contact her mother's life had been. She did not want to consider how much Ruchel needed her every day. It was easier just to perform her duties, make the daily calls, take her mother food shopping for a large order once a week, chauffeur her to medical appointments, and share a Friday night dinner together at the duplex on Barclay. Hannah had tried to get Ruchel to do more, but her mother didn't want to leave her home not even to have dinner at Hannah's just for a change. It finally became clear, Hannah confided to Marilyn one day, that after Barack's death, Ruchel had closed herself up in a ghetto of her own making. Hannah returned to the empty duplex to wait, although she wasn't sure for what. Maybe I'm waiting for the realization to sink in, she said aloud, startling herself. Exhausted, she lay down on the narrow bed where she had collected the dreams of her childhood and tried not to think about how much Ruchel feared the dark. She got up and lit candles as Ruchel used to do when Hannah was out on a date. She placed them in the kitchen and the front hall so that when her mother returned, it wouldn't be to a pitch-black house. As Hannah lay in the gloom, an army of fears marched across her chest and made camp until she could barely breathe. The last fear was the heaviest. What if, it asked with an evil gleam, 
this disappearing act was related to the altercation they had the night before. Hannah had been willfully suppressing the distressing image of Ruchel out of control. Her face contorted, her arm raised in a fist. It was a vision that had been flickering in the back of Hannah's mind all through the search. The last time Hannah had seen her mother, the passive face she had known was twisted beyond recognition. Ruchel had been shouting, shouting. Never in her memory did she recall her mother raising her voice. Hannah might have been less surprised if she had witnessed the Sphinx get up and stretch. Ruchel's disappearance comes after Hannah reveals to her that she must go to Germany to negotiate the sale of some property owned by Sonnenschein. The sale is to a German real estate mogul, Hage Heilemann, the founder of an exclusive chain of hotels called Luxury Historic Hotels, and who is represented by a charming broker named Maximilian Moore. Max was raised by four women because his father, an SS commandant, a famous commandant, disappeared a few years after the end of the war when Max was two. From their first meeting in her Montreal offices, Hannah feels an inexplicable draw, yet a nagging fear that the attraction she feels is a betrayal of her family's history. It is through Max that I sought to examine the other side of the second-generation experience. How the children of perpetrators, also born after the war, deal with the massive baggage of their history. Max was sent to Montreal to negotiate for the Zunschein-owned property. Following their first meeting, Max invites Hannah to join him for dinner at the Ritz-Carlton, which goes very well until he asks Hannah the wrong question. The next morning, Max was unable to shake the feeling that he had inadvertently stepped into quicksand. How did that happen? The business he had come to conduct was not being conducted in the manner he had anticipated. Something about Hannah Barron had managed to distract him. There was no doubt she was an attractive woman, but he had known and been intimate with many such women. Nadia had been stunning, but that did not a marriage make. Alexander would be 15 now, probably still unaware that he had a biological father who had been eliminated from his life soon after he was born, cut like the excess fat Nadia would trim from her steak. And Nicole, well, she came close to perfection, but sadly, he did not rise to her standards. She found him too, too, what was the word she used? Oh yes, repressed. The French, they're so emotional especially about love and how it must be expressed. It would never have worked. And since her, none had succeeded in accomplishing what Hannah Barron had in less than a day without any artifice he could detect. He had let his guard down, but it would not happen again. It was merely a question of maintaining a proper distance because without it, any project becomes an uphill struggle. What disturbed him most was how he had inadvertently opened the door to territory he should have known was verboten. He had meant the evening to be pleasant, light, filled with social chit-chat. All it took to complicate matters was a simple assumption on his part. The question, so you were born here, was all he had asked, and suddenly he fell into that black hole in the history called the Holocaust. A small nagging voice raised the old familiar question, why can't we live in the present? 
Why not was truly a mystery to him, although he considered himself an astute fellow and a keen observer of human nature. But he should have been prepared for this off-limits territory. It was for most people, but most especially for a German. Would he never learn? The last character I want to introduce to you is Rochel, who is burdened with the consequences that come with buried secrets and shame that inevitably passes from one generation to the next. Her story, left in a confessional letter to her daughter, is about a life filled with loss, betrayal, and guilt. It begins with a difficult childhood, and then there's the struggle of life in the Krakow ghetto during the war, and in some ways ends when she's taken prisoner and sent to Auschwitz, but not as a Jew. I was an only child like you, Hannah, but not spoiled as you were by Barak. My papa doted on me, but he set strict rules that I live by. And though he did not often say so, I knew he loved me very much. It was a secret we shared. Sometimes he would whisper in my ear, Du bist der Eugen mein Kopf, the apple of my eye. How that thrilled me. And when he, we talked, he would crouch down and make himself small so we could be closer as equals, conspirators. His breath smelled of tobacco and something else, something sweet. When we were eye to eye, he would run his hand over the tangle of my curls as if he could smooth my hair down by some magic and at the same time tame the wild thoughts racing around inside my head. Somehow he understood I would tame my thoughts to please him if I could. Papa was very different when he was with Mama. Near her, he somehow swelled and became taller, straighter. He treated her as if she was a fair damsel, gallantly taking her hand whenever she rose from her seat. He would slip his arm around her small waist, helping her to navigate past obstacles with authority, like a captain steering his ship through the difficult straits of our sitting room. When she spoke, he wrapped her in his gaze as if no one else existed, as if protecting her fragile nature from a harsh world. And when she played her violin, he would sit in utter rapture as she became one with her instrument. When she was finished, he would take her hands and kiss them, whispering, such beauty from such fragile fingers. Fragile was not how I would ever describe my mother. To me, Mama had a core of steel. Papa looked at me when we spoke, but Mama hardly acknowledged my existence, especially when Papa was not in the room. And when we were all together, all I ever received from her were little drops of poison coated in sugar and wrapped like pretty sweets. Oh, look at that hair, Shimon. What can we do with our little Veldachaya? How did such a wild animal come to live among civilized people like us? Here she would wink at me and then look at my father with the little smile that slipped into me like a knife. Why am I recounting all this now that it is too late, Hanala? Now that I occupy another world? I should have shared these stories long ago. Perhaps I would have if you had asked. Probably not. Perhaps I was afraid that you might learn too much about who I was. Maybe it is true that beginnings can help you to understand endings. In a life torn between having love and wanting love, what are the rules? What is fair in love, in war? Maybe I'm recalling all these stories so you will know that the world I came from was a place of culture, of refinement even, not a pillar of smoke blotting out the sun.
I came from Krakow, a city that had once been the seat of kings who ruled an empire that sprawled over half of Europe. In school, we learned about Poland's hardships under the rule of successive conquerors, while in my home, I learned about betrayal and the politics of love. My novel, Don't Ask, embodies two mysteries in a love story. Ruchel's early life and the horrific traumas she suffers during and after the war were packed into a suitcase she handed to her only child. Every family has secrets, and no, no matter how much each generation is affected by what came before them, we all eventually come to wonder who packed this suitcase that we're handed at birth and that we continue to carry through our lives. I wish you the good fortune of unpacking yours, and I hope this story has resonated for you. Thank you for listening and for reading.